I don't like sand. It's coarse, rough, and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Not like the nerd byword. The nerd byword is soft, smooth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. This week we're going to fix episode 2 of the Star Wars prequels, Attack of the Clones, but first, we have to get underway with our nerd news segment. As always, Dave, what do you have for us this week? Well, what I have for you is a new Batwoman. Uh, so, according to Variety, Javicia Leslie has been cast as the CW's new Batwoman. Her most recent role was on the CBS series God Friended Me, which lasted for two seasons. Uh, she released a statement, uh, and I quote, I'm extremely proud to be the first black actress to play the iconic role of Batwoman on television, and as a bisexual woman, I am honored to join this groundbreaking show, which has been such a trailblazer for the LGBT community. Uh, on Instagram, former Batwoman Ruby Rose praised Leslie's casting, saying, I am so glad Batwoman will be played by an amazing black woman. I want to congratulate Leslie on taking over the Batcape. You are walking into an amazing cast and crew. Now, Leslie will play a new character, Ryan Wilder, specifically developed for the CW show. Uh, this casting is incredibly promising. Uh, Leslie was quite good on God Friended Me, so I'm cautiously optimistic. I still wished that they would have tried to... Uh, find an inspiration from the comic books rather than creating a new character whole cloth. Uh, from a writing perspective, I understand that they're looking for a, a blank slate character that they can go into any direction with. But as a comic book fan, I tune into the CW to see some of my favorite characters adapted to live action. Right now, the Batwoman character is not even the main draw in her own show. Uh, that really is uh, Rachel Scarston's Alice character. Uh, that being said, I'm still going to tune in, and I'm going to give season two a shot. I like the casting, and I hope the writers make it work. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, this was very, very intriguing for me. Um, I still have not checked out season one, but um, I, I it, it, it teases me every time I log into HBO Max. Um when I continue my Game of Thrones uh, watch through. But um, yeah, I thought that was intriguing. That it's a completely new character. Um, and I saw some speculation to other characters in comics. So I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on that. Is there anybody that kind of rings a bell from the DC comic universe? The way she's described, the closest thing I could think of is like a Harper Row character. That's uh, the one that I saw. Yeah, she's the, the the probably the most recent addition to to the Batman uh, mythos that might fit the bill. Uh, but other than that, no. Uh, her her basic description does not ring a particular bell. Um. Yeah, and I also saw the praise from from Ruby Rose, but I'm I'm definitely intrigued heading into um, this new season. And I I did find it interesting. Uh, the Hollywood Report article that I read on this um, is that they are not killing off Kate Kane. Um, and it's in fact, going to be featured as one of the mysteries of season two as to what happened to her. So I'm interested. I don't know if Ruby Rose is going to come in and 
record a couple of scenes to to tie that up towards the end of the season or what, but I thought that was very intriguing. I don't know what to tell you, man. It looks like Gotham City has a bat problem. Batman <laughs> vanishes, Batwoman vanishes, nobody dies, they all just kind of disappear. You're I don't right. know. It's kind of an odd situation, but here's hoping they pull it off. Chris, what is your nerd news story for the week? Uh, we're sticking with uh, Warner Brothers and the DC Universe in a sense. Um, Aquaman's getting a little frosty. So Jason Momoa is going to be Frosty the Snowman. He uh, is going to do like a CGI live action type of deal. Um for Warner Brothers and Stampede Ventures, but he is going to be Frosty the Snowman. I had to check when I first saw this and make sure this was not an Onion article. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, uh, it could, I, I, I'm really just fascinated to watch this develop. Um, I love everything about Jason Momoa. I love his whole ethos as a human being. I think his family is such a beautiful dynamic of, of being a blended family and, you know, him being a dad and, like he said, like that's his lifelong dream and that's something that I, I just love to watch play out. It's one of the few Hollywood families that, you know, it just really seems like it really panned out well for them. Um, John Burke and Greg Silverman of Stampede are going to produce, along with Jeff Johns of Mad Ghost, um, Roy Lee, uh, and Jason Momoa as well. Um, David Berenbaum, who worked with uh, John Berg on Elf, is writing the script based on you know Frosty the character, and then Momoa is going to be the CGI Frosty in a hybrid CG live action film. Uh, Berg said from his and I quote here from his role as a fearsome count in a land of ice and fire to the oceanic success we all had with Aquaman. It felt only right to realize Jason this time out of snow. Um, and I'm reading this from the Deadline article from Mike Fleming Jr., uh, dated July the 1st. Uh, and then uh, Greg Silverman said, quote, We know Jason's as a true human being filled with love, compassion, and a deep connection to Ohana, which is family for those of you who haven't watched Lilo and Stitch, um, all of which is the living spirit of Xmas and Frosty. So, again, um, I love just about everything that Jason Momoa has been a part of uh, from, you know, Game of Thrones. I love Cal Drogo, his character on there. Um, I loved Aquaman. It's probably my day, uh, favorite DC movie to date, at least in the DCEU, uh, in the recent films. Um, I even dug his show on Netflix, Frontier, where he played this big, bad dude. Um and it was just an awesome show, like an awesome premise, even as the history nerd that that I am. Um, but yeah, so I'm really interested to see what direction this takes, because it's it's a little bonkers, if we're being honest. What do you think, Dave? I don't know what to say to this one. You know, you're, you're exactly right in saying that Jason Momoa is a really likable guy. And and basically everything he touches, he makes it work. He brings a, a, a quality to it that, that is unique and all his own. And so his involvement in this excites me. Uh, although I'm generally getting tired of the constant remakes coming out of Hollywood. Now, the writer that was involved with Elf being attached to this gives me a little bit of hope. I think that movie had a really good sense of humor to it, and it's kind of become sort of, I think, the last uh, movie to, to turn into a Christmas classic, I think. And ultimately, Momoa has an incredibly distinctive voice. 
a very distinctive cadence. So for him to voice this Frosty character, I'm, I'm really just looking forward to seeing what he does with the role. It is definitely going to be a different kind of Frosty, I imagine. Yeah, for sure. Um, Elf is my personal favorite. We watch it at least once or twice a day during the entire month of December in our household. So definitely excited. Um, that would that was probably other than Momoa, you know, is the intriguing part. The most promising uh, element was was that gentleman being part of the script. But yeah, that wraps up our nerd news segment for this week. When we come back from this, our first break, we're gonna fix Attack of the Clones. And that's no small order, pun intended. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back here on the Nerd By Word. This episode, we are going to fix episode two, Attack of the Clones. So, um, we're working with the same format that we did two episodes ago when we fixed the Phantom Menace. Dave and I each came up with our big three fixes that were really important and monumental and needed to be done immediately. And then, because the movie is what it is, we needed a lightning round of little nitpick things so we picked five or six things for a lightning round just real quick fixes dave what is first on your big three? Oh, th- this is such a difficult movie to sit down and watch these days there are so many problems with it uh, so much potential yeah but also so many problems but after re-watching the movie uh, the the very first thing that i think i latched onto was the character of, of count dooku i don't think he works I don't think he's even necessary in the movie. I think it probably would have been better to have Darth Maul survive episode one and use him in, in Dooku's stead. Dooku is just such a strange character. He feels like a Maul substitute to begin with. You kind of killed the secondary char- uh, villain off in, in episode one, and then you have a new secondary villain, and then you kill him off at the beginning of episode three and have a different secondary villain in General Grievous. And and so you don't have a really strong through line of villains. The other problem is that George Lucas tries to make Dooku initially ambiguous, uh, to have the audience question whether he's just a really good guy or if he's really a bad guy. And at no point did I buy this, not, not from the word go. One of the Jedi says early on in the movie about Dooku, he's a political idealist, not a murderer. And I didn't buy that, not even remotely. It, it seemed so telegraphed, in part due to the casting of Christopher Lee, that this was going to be a villain. Christopher Lee, of course, made a name for himself as Count Dracula in the 1970s, and then Lucas calls his character in this movie Count Dooku. It's so on the nose. It is just telegraphing what is getting ready to happen. He is going to be an aristocratic villain. And and sure enough, that's exactly what he went with. Now, Lee's a fantastic actor, and like so many actors in the prequels, he gets really nothing to chew on. So why do we need Dooku? His character really goes nowhere. His leaving of the Jedi Order before Attack of the Clones has no impact on the overall story, because none of the characters that he ultimately interacts with really knew him when he was a Jedi, except for Yoda, whose interactions with him are incredibly limited. So that whole backstory goes nowhere. It would have been so much more fun to see this role filled by Darth Maul. He could have served the same function, essentially, and it would add additional urgency to the fight at the end of the movie, since Anakin and Obi-Wan have faced off against him before, particularly in our reworked Episode 1. 
Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I even have this, um, and I'll revisit it in the lightning round, but it's it's extremely a problematic character. As you say, Christopher Lee is a very talented actor. Um, he's perfect as Sauron in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, oh, yes. Love him there. Um, and even if you look at the backstory, like, throughout the extended universe of of Star Wars that's a, you nailed it on the head he's an aristocratic villain he came from an immense amount of wealth that's exactly what Count Dooku was so then why are you surprised that he's an antagonist or that he's a villain like who are you trying to fool here like even the eight-year-olds you're trying to sell toys to were not we're not tricked by this um you know I don't want to show too much of my hand for my later points but yeah I'm totally there with you um and here here we go again with star wars like creating a a decent enough villain uh like you did in maul and it's it's really problematic that you quote unquote killed them off uh so soon you're creating more problems for yourself you're 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 kicking yourself in the groin here yeah and and really if if you look at you know the the original trilogy you know technically the main villain is the emperor is palpatine we don't even see him until the uh, until empire strikes back and he really comes fully into his own in return of the jedi but the secondary villain which is darth vader he's the through line and you don't have that through line in this particular trilogy which i think is a real problem because you 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 are missing the opportunity to build a real antagonistic relationship between the secondary villains and the heroes that builds on itself and escalates over time um so yeah this is a problem i think with dooku chris what is your first main point in how to fix uh this particular movie the first thing that comes to mind, even when I just think about this movie, I don't even have to watch it. Uh, the thing that is most meme-worthy, the thing that is the punchline of every joke about this movie, are the Padme and Anakin scenes. So if you want to make this a love story, and you want this to be the story of how Anakin and Padme fell in love, then make it an actual love story. And I'm trying to use optimistic language, however, we're changing it rather than just ragging on it for the umpteenth time. Uh, in nearly 18, well, 18 years since the film's release, make it an actual love story. Um, if you would have aged Anakin up in episode one, like we suggested, then by now there wouldn't be this whole hot for teacher uh, type of dynamic that he and Padme have. It's, it's really uncomfortable. Um, the way he looks at her makes my skin crawl. Um, she needs to file a restraining order. Why in God's name are they alone together under any circumstances? Um, this is not a love story. This is a predatory and prey, especially in light of the Me Too movement and everything that's come to light and, you know, just awareness that's been brought about in the last year or two. It is really tough to watch every single scene that they're in. And then all of a sudden... She goes, and you even hear it in like the first scene together where, where she says, please don't look at me like that. You hear the discomfort in her voice, but then all of a sudden, for no reason, she's deeply in love with him. Like, despite no previous, uh, you know, no previous notion of that. She goes from being completely unnerved by him to madly in love with him. So it's really problematic. Um, it is not... Uh, a romance in any form or fashion. Um, so if you want to do that, 
you know, you need to make it an actual romance. The way that you had with Han Solo and Leia, you had the playful banter back and forth, and then you actually buy that by the second or third film that they actually love one another. Um, but but what you have here, you know, I, I was pre-law before I switched, uh, you know, to education. And I need evidence. If I were if I were to go into a court of law, I need evidence. And the evidence that you're presenting me here is not a love story. It's a predatory situation. I totally agree with your assessment of the love story in this movie. Lucas tried to make the love story really the heart of the movie, this, this great forbidden love. And it epically falls flat. I think it does in large part because Anakin comes across as so unlikable, like a creepy stalker is exactly right. He he has the, the these looks that he gives Padme, it's just in, incredibly gross to, to revisit. When Padme confesses her love for him, all I could ask was, why? What did this guy do that made you want to be with him? Stare creepily? Fall off a mound? Advocate for fascism? What exactly was the key to your heart in this whole setup? It is just absolutely uh, like a switch being flipped from one moment to the next. Their age difference in episode 1 also holds this back, in my opinion. It's so creepy from Padme's perspective, too. She even says, uh, you'll always be that little boy I knew on Tatooine. I mean, jeez. Oh, it's just... It makes my skin crawl. He is he comes across really bad in this relationship. She comes across really bad in this relationship. Aging him up in episode one and pre-establishing a flirty banter in that movie would have taken, I think, a lot of the edge off of the creepiness in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you have like, and and this hints at your next point, I believe. But like, you have the whole sand soliloquy or whatever and the fact that that horrible horrible pickup line actually worked and she kissed him as a result like what i mean like look no further that is exhibit a ladies and gentlemen of the court as to why all of this is trash uh but yeah dave what is number two on your big three well I'll just say this. I think that a whole bunch of nerds went to the beach and tried the sand line and realized it does not work. Really, it's the cringy <laughs> dialogue. The dialogue is pure cringe from, from start to finish. Lucas is not known to write great dialogue. Harrison Ford famously said to him, George, you can type this stuff, but you can't say it. And that, I think, sums it up perfectly. If only somebody would have been that honest with him for the prequels. Here are some gems from Anakin to Padme I think we need to consider. Here's the evidence that you asked for, Chris. I am haunted by the kiss that you never should have given me. You are in my very soul, tormenting me. My personal favorite, believe me, I wish I could wish my feelings away. There's like a double wish going on here. <laughs> You're asking me to be rational. That is something I know I cannot do. Yeah, I don't feel rational either listening to this dialogue. And of course, the entirely meme-worthy, I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. Not like here. Here everything is soft and smooth. Good God, man. It is absolutely awful. And Anakin gets by far the worst of it as far as dialogue goes. But he's not the only character. In fact, no character is really left immune to this. 
The thing is, Lucas had plenty of help scripting the best Star Wars movie, Empire Strikes Back. There were several other writers involved there. And all he needed here was for somebody who had an ear for dialogue to come in and punch it up and make it sound like real people. This does not sound like real people even remotely. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I feel like this is a classic case of surrounding yourself with a bunch of yes men. Um, you have George Lucas, who, you know, is worshipped for being the creator of this thing that we all love so much. Um, but then there's no accountability. Um, and then you have the strongest film in the original trilogy, being The Empire Strikes Back, is the one that he had the least creative control over. The one where he stepped at step back he wasn't even the director of um so and then you come off of that 20 years later or however long later uh he's just surrounded by a bunch of yes men and like he has full creative control over these three films um and yeah it's it this is the result i mean um yeah it's it's truly truly awful um and, you know, for me, at the time, like, I, I th consider this my apology to Hayden Christensen. At the time, I just blamed this all on Hayden Christensen and how much of a terrible actor he was, and this was all his fault. But now that I look at this through a different lens, I need to apologize because he wasn't given anything to work with. If this is the script, when you truly look at it, the script is the problem. There's only so much that you can do. Um, now, the choices that he made, you know, are not the ones that I would have made if I were the actor or whatever and all that. But when you're given crap material like this, there's only so much you can do with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I think Christian gets a bad uh, rep after all. Um, there are moments, even in this movie, uh, subtle moments, and I'll, and I'll bring this up a little later again. But there are subtle movies, uh, m moments where it absolutely works. Um, the the moment after the whole um, sand people incident, I think, is is a highlight as far as his acting goes. And I think there was something there. I think he could have delivered a great performance if he would have been given the material that he actually needed to do so. Um, so, Chris, what is your next uh, big point of things we need to fix in Attack of the Clones? This seems to be a trend with every one of these films and episodes. Um, they need to properly characterize Anakin. For me, just watching this, and this goes back to the evidence, he is never, he never seems actually heroic. And if you want for me to be emotionally invested in his turn to the dark side and his eventual tr uh, transition into dark, Darth Vader, I need to actually believe that he was a hero to begin with. And neither one of these films, particularly this film, do I ever think that he's actually heroic. Um, I understand the dynamic that they were going for. They kind of took our advice, but you executed it in poor fashion from episode one, where he's this roguishly dashing, swashbuckling type character a la Han Solo. But it, it just lands poorly here due to the dialogue. Maybe it's due to the choices he made acting wise. But I never actually believe that he's a hero. Heroes do not slaughter, and this gives into my next point, but we'll get there. You know, heroes do not slaughter an entire community 
due to one foul act. Heroes do not do the things that Anakin Skywalker does throughout this film. I I just never I never think of him as an actual hero. And so all of that is absolutely lost in episode 3. The whole emotional punch that is intended falls flat for me. Now, I said this last week or excuse me, 2 weeks ago when we did episode 1. Now that I have watched the Clone Wars animated series, which, you know, 20 years later, helped to properly characterize Anakin as a hero, albeit with his rule-bending machismo, now Episode 3 is more effective to me, that a turn means more to me, but as we said two weeks ago, it took a secondary, quote-unquote, spin-off series albeit animated, for me to understand that. You didn't do it properly here, and he doesn't come across as a hero. What do you think? Oh, I I 100% agree. There is a a scene early on in the movie in the whole Coruscant chase sequence when they uh, go into a bar, and he kind of casually says, get back to your drinks, this is Jedi business, and that, that sneering that sneering arrogance of I'm, I'm better than you does not even really mesh with the humble kid that is, you know, shown in episode one. Where, where did this come from? Um, it, it's just not very good, consistent characterization. And I'll go back to what I said in our Phantom Menace episode. Uh, a, a lovable, roguish, charming rule breaker can work. Uh, and it becomes much more believable that he would willingly violate his orders if he has a previous history of that. But from all we've seen, he was this little boy, uh, all innocent, yippee! And now suddenly he's just this this arrogant, uh, creepy stalker dude. Uh, there is very little heroic about him. Um, and it would be much more believable that Padme would fall in love with him if we had... Uh, established a heroic character here, somebody who uh, has redeeming qualities, uh, maybe some weaknesses, but but needs to have some kind of redeeming qualities. And Anakin here, I just don't see those redeeming qualities. I mean, do you, Chris? No, absolutely not. Um, and that really makes me go back and question, and, and I may even do a whole rewatch of the original trilogy for this, but when you have a character like Han Solo, I never questioned that he was heroic. But then again, when you do some research, you find that Harrison Ford ad-libbed a lot of that. A lot of the dialogue and a lot of the choices came from Harrison Ford himself, who I'm completely biased, is one of my all-time favorite people in Hollywood, and I think one of the greatest actors of the last 50 years that, we, that we've seen in Hollywood. So, you know, that's not that doesn't really come as a surprise to me. But, you know, and that's that's a lot to ask. And that's why I was skeptical of the solo film with Harrison Ford not being attached to it. Um, when you, It's a lot to ask of anybody to be like Harrison Ford, to do the things that he can do. If you're not going to give him a quality script or you're not going to give him, you know, great materials, like, you know, I, I always use this analogy with my students. Um, you know, the vocabulary lists and the materials that I give you are like the ingredients. If you're getting, if you're giving these actors... Um, you know, very low quality ingredients in terms of script and, and, you know, inspiration, then 
you know, it's a really tall order to expect them to do something like the, the giants of the industry, like the Harrison Fords and Carrie Fishers and the Mark Hamills do. Um, the, the, those are once in a generation type talents. Um, and, you know, and all due respect to Hayden Christensen, Natalie Portman, I, I, I truly feel, especially Natalie Portman is a talented actor. Um, but you know, you're not going to necessarily be able to recreate that magic, you know? So, so meet them halfway. Um, but yeah. Uh, so Dave, what is their, your third and final of the big three? And there's a huge lack of stakes in this movie, I think, which is really odd to say, considering the um, the overall story arc. I mean, this movie deals with a with a separatist movement, with attempted assassination, with a looming war, with forbidden love. There's you know a lot of meaty stuff going on here, and yet the entire time I'm watching this movie, there are no stakes. Everyone feels invincible. Nobody ever seems to be in any real danger. There's no tension. A great example of this is when Anakin loses his arm in Battle with Dooku. It's a blink-and-you-miss-it moment. Compare that when, to when Luke loses his hand in Empire Strikes Back. It's physical torment, it's a turning point in the fight, and it leads to this incredibly uh, emotional uh, peak in the movie. Uh, and here, Anakin is just kind of, you know, arm off, tossed aside, let's move on. Padme, here's another example, falls out of a gunship, and Anakin freaks out. Right, great moment. Padme just gets up, dusts herself off, and walks off. There isn't even an injury. There's not so much as a scratch from falling out of this gunship. How are we supposed to feel like these characters are in any real danger? The nameless mass of clones that we have doesn't help here either. In the original trilogy, you have stormtroopers, faceless soldiers, sure, but we assumed at the time, not that these were clones, but that these were regular people that had been drafted. And the rebels, on the other hand, who didn't hide their faces. And here, in this big climactic battle, what we have is nameless, faceless clones against robots. It makes for pretty explosions, but it does. It just feels empty. It feels devoid of emotion, devoid of stakes. And the fix here is is fairly simple. You need to make an effort to show that the clones are individuals. The Clone Wars cartoon did this really well, uh, and and let people get injured or even have somebody die on the side of the heroes. Take somebody from the Jedi Council who makes a final stand and gets mowed down or something. Uh, but it just everybody on the side of heroes. Feels feels invincible, and even when Anakin does get injured, it's just not played for dramatic effect. It's just like, oh, we threw this in as another parallel to the original trilogy, and then we just toss it aside and move on with life. And it, nothing ever feels high stakes. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this film, the more I sit and really reflect on it, I feel like this film was that that day that your parents didn't feel like cooking and they just brought you through the drive through at fast food. They're trying to get to episode three here. Um, they're trying to get to the turn and it's George Lucas and whoever uh, on the creative team is just saying, you know what? We really, this is how you do it. You have three films, you have a trilogy, you know, and this is just the filling material, which, you know, if you compare that to the original trilogy, um, most people would agree, I think, if you say that the second film in that trilogy is the strongest one. You know, Empire Strikes Back is probably the best Star Wars film ever created. 
Um, even if you look at the sequel trilogy, um, as controversial as it is, last The Last Jedi is probably the strongest film of that trilogy. When you look by comparison of the prequel trilogy, in my opinion, I think Attack of the Clones, the second film in the trilogy, is the weakest one. Phantom Menace, for all its warts, I think, you know, with all of the issues that we've covered, this this is the, the, the weakest film and does the least. It does nothing. It doesn't really set up anything. Um, it doesn't have any real lasting, you know, stakes, as you said. Um, because I feel like it's just a through line. It's a border check to get us to where we want to be our ultimate destination of episode three, turning into Darth Vader. Where's the mask? Where's the heavy breathing? Let's get there. And how does Anakin turn it? And, and, and this, this, it's, it's this industrial processed thing. And, and I think that's why ultimately without the secondary clone wars or, or anything like that, without that, the turn in episode three falls flat yet again because it's just rushed through. And as an intuitive person, um, I always bring this back to psychology. Um, I'm an INFJ and the N stands for intuitive. I look for deep. And I feel like, especially with these three films, the contrast of that is the sensor. The sensors always want something that stimulates the five senses. So sensors will love explosions and boom and bra, but intuitive persons like myself, and I assume you would be as well, if I had to guess, we want real deep connections. We want to go deeper. We want relationships with our characters in the media that we take in. And I feel like there's not really any of that in this film. There's no deep relationships that are actually believable, that are viable. Um, the Padme and Anakin relationship, I don't buy it. The Pat, uh, excuse me, the, the Anakin and Obi-Wan relationship, I don't buy it. He rants and raves about how much he hates him the whole movie. And then Obi-Wan turns around and says, you are my brother in episode three. Why am I supposed to believe that? Again, going back to the evidence that you have shown me, he is not guilty of being his brother, your honor. Yeah, ultimately, I think the best word that, that sums up this point and really the movie to me is that it feels sterile. It feels like yes. a hospital hallway. Uh, there's really, there's very, very, very little meat on the bones here. Chris, what is your final big point on how to fix episode two, Attack of the Clones? It's the entire sequence of the slaughter of the Tusken Raiders. I understand the whole... I promised my mother I would see her again, or I love my mother and I have to rescue my mother. But I find it really hard for to believe that a heroic character, that I'm someone that I am supposed to be invested in emotionally, and someone I'm supposed to be invested in story-wise, as the hero of this trilogy, would slaughter an entire village because they kept his mother in captivity. I thought it also, it was just a weird play out, the, the whole sequence of events, that he cuts her loose and she instantly dies. Like that moment, that moment she died. And I feel really weird that he would just go and intentionally ignite his lightsaber and slaughter each and every one of the individuals in that camp. I would buy it. Here's how I would fix it. 
I would have him inconsolable with grief, and he just does like a force push type thing when he sees his dead mother in his arms. Then he does this whole like blah in anguish, and then the people that are in his immediate circle can fall dead. That's believable. But for a hero to me to go and intentionally, maliciously slaughter an entire village of people who, if we're being honest, have not been treated well in all of Star Wars until you reach the Mandalorian. You even have, like, it feels like a slur to say sand people. I feel dirty saying that. You know, Tusken Raiders, and and, and I, I believe, if, if memory serves, that that's visited in the Mandalorian where they say, call them Tusken Raiders, or something something to that effect in the, the latter episodes of season one of Mandalorian. But it's just a really bad look, um, especially nearly 20 years later. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I'm, I'm really of two minds here. On the one hand, I hate this moment. On the other hand, it leads to the sequence with Padme, which I think is actually acting-wise for Anakin, the, the highlight of this movie. It is the one time when I completely believe him. He is 100% present and he comes to life as an actual character. I really particularly hate the and the women and children too thing. That that's that's I think where things get really problematic. So the way you said it lashing out in anger and then kind of being horrified with what he's done is a, is a much more interesting setup. They even cut away in this scene really weirdly. Like he pops yes. up, and like ignites the lightsaber, cuts a couple guys down, and suddenly just wipe. And and that's already a, a weird choice because either you want as a as a storyteller you want to to have your character go through this moment, or you don't. But don't decide that you want the moment in your movie, but you're too embarrassed to show it. That you're kind of trying to have it both ways there. Seeing the emotional turmoil he goes through would actually go a long way to make this movie feel like there's actual stakes here. Um, so, yeah, I really like the, the idea of him having, you know, an anguish, like, lashing out with the force that kills a bunch of people around him. And then he's horrified with what he's done. And that can lead into the scene with Padme where he confesses a moment of weakness and that he, his power has hurt people because again Hayden Christensen's acting in that particular scene it sings it works better than anything else written in the movie and and I would hate to lose that moment but the way it's executed no he does not come across as a hero in any way shape or form but somebody who in their grief loses control for a moment is much more believable and it would work better in the context so I'm 100% with you there yeah, absolutely. Even even if, as you said, the weird cutaway. Like, if you would have seen him, like, really, like, lashing out. The, the thing about it is the few that he cut down, he seemed to do it coldly with no emotion. If you would have seen him angrily just, ah, 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 and cutting down, you know, one after another, and then cut away, I feel like that would have been packed with more emotion, and that would have landed a lot better. Either one of those two I'm fine with, just um, what we were given in the film, I was not okay with. All right, that wraps up our big three changes for Attack of the Clones. We're heading now to the lightning round. Rapid fire, Dave, what's first in the lightning round for you? 
What in the world is up with Jedi Master Sifo-Dyas? It's never really properly explained. I like the notion of Obi-Wan uh, investigating, but the whole dead Jedi ordered clone arm lead thing never gets a proper resolution in this movie. Who was this guy? Did he actually do it or was it just Palpatine using his name? Never is it spelled out what the actual solution to the mystery is. We spent like an hour on this mystery that never gets resolved. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I think if memory serves, I think I think uh, I think I read a, a thing on Reddit where this was actually a typo in the script, and they just went with it. So like like okay, um, but yeah, and then I think this is is revisited in in the animated series, either Clone Wars or Rebels, but I think it's Clone Wars where they actually tried to go back and once again fix the plot holes left by. Um, by the prequel films, but yeah. Sifo Dyas, I'm pretty sure that was uh, originally a typo, and they just went with it. It's absolutely bizarre. Chris, what is your first point for the lightning round? Uh, my first one is, you know, when Padme has to go into hiding, at her home planet of Naboo, the entire galaxy far, far away. Where's the best place to hide on your home planet of Naboo? Yeah, that is really weird to me, too. Like, ultimately, uh, even when they arrive, it doesn't seem like they're really incognito. There's guards, then they end up visiting the current queen of Naboo. Like, dude, you're trying to kind of have, like, a low profile. Going and <laughs> hanging out with the ruler of the planet is probably not the way to go. So I 100% agree with you on that. That's just bizarre. Uh, yeah, Dave, what's lightning round number two for you? Uh, why are the Jedi okay with the notion of clones? I feel like there's something missing here. Are there no spiritual or force implications of duplicating the same guy a million times? I always found this troubling. Uh, is that not a disturbance in the force if there's that many versions of the same person? Um, also, these clones are programmed and have no real free will. Uh, are they not beings in the Force? Do they not deserve to be treated with respect? They basically use these clones in this movie uh, like, like the Trade Federation does their robots. There seems to be a moral disconnect there. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention that these individuals are cloned after someone who is actively trying to kill them. They are cloned after Django Fett who is one of their key nemeses throughout this film. So you're okay with that? Um, and, you know, and then like, the whole Jedi Council scene where they're like, you know, this is, you know, hmm, this isn't, doesn't seem quite right. Um, it, it reminds me of the scene in the, uh, the recent Lorax animated film where the Lorax takes the marshmallow and says, no, I'm going to eat this, but I'm highly offended by it. So it's like the Jedi Council saying, we're going to use this army, but we're highly offended by it. Yeah, it's really weird. Chris, what's your next point? Um, the, you noted this previously, but why couldn't it be Dooku? Dooku uh, Ki Adimundi uh, says, Dooku is a political idealist, not a murderer. You really believe that he could not resort to murder? How many times throughout human history, if we had political idealists, resort to terrorism or murder? Why is it so inconceivable that Count Dooku, who left the Jedi Order, presumably to study the dark side of the Force, would not murder someone? Why is that so inconceivable? 
And I think we noted this before with episode one, but the Jedi come uh, not away from these these prequel movies looking particularly good. Um, so uh, I think Ki-Adi Mundi sitting on his high horse, acting like a, a Jedi is above, you know, doing things that are wrong. Well, all we have to do is look to the prequels. There's plenty of wrong happening here. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Definitely, Dave. What is number three on your lightning round list? It's the Boba Fett thing. Like, does Boba really need to be Jango Fett's clone? Can't can't it just be his son? There, nothing is added to the story by Boba Fett being a clone. And even more so, nothing is added even by Boba being there. Like, Jango gets gets killed, right? Boba has this really weird, strange goodbye moment with his dad's severed head, and he is never <laughs> seen again until Empire Strikes Back. He is never seen again. You're laying a breadcrumb there for something that literally goes nowhere, because it's certainly not referenced in Empire or Return that that um, a Jedi killed his, his, uh, his dad. So if you're not going to bring him back for Episode 3 in some way, what was the point of any of this? It's completely pointless. What do you think, Chris? Oh, definitely. And and please excuse me if I sound like a broken record, but he was revisited in the Clone Wars. But once again, you're relying on a spinoff series to tell the story that you should have told us in the first place. And I feel like um, this is going to get into one of my future points, I feel like, for Revenge of the Sith. Um, and it's a disservice to the character of Mace Windu in particular. He just comes across like in as such a buffoon. Um, with all of like the heady type of Jedi stuff, and then the one cool moment that he has when he beheads Jango Fett, like it kind of falls flat. Like, it's just just so weird to me. The whole dynamic, um, and and a lot of this, and this will tie into a future point of mine. I love Boba Fett. He was one of my favorite Star Wars characters growing up as a kid. I don't need to see him as an eight, nine, ten year old. Like does nothing for me. Like. Like, for him to, you know, just be tagging along with his dad, idolizing his father, that does nothing for me. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It seems like a, a big waste uh, of story right there and of screen time. Uh, Chris, what is your uh, next point for the lightning round? Um, this, throughout Star Wars, for me, episodes and films like this and scenes like this always fall flat. For me, it's the overuse of C-3PO and R2-D2. Um, they're great characters, sure, for the service that they are, but any time that they are the prominent leading characters of a scene in the film, or episodes of even Clone Wars, which we praise a lot, or Rebels, anytime it's a droid-centric storyline, it just falls flat for me. Um, the only exception is the one arc in Star Wars Rebels where you had, um, that Imperial droid that turned and um, the name escapes me of the Star Wars Rebels, uh, their, their droid. Was it Scrapper but, or something like that? Something like that. Anyways, anytime that you have a droid-centric storyline, it is so boring to me and it completely takes me out of the film. Uh, the whole, I've lost my head, oh dear, oh my. Like, I, I'm not a fan of C-3PO. I think he's a jerk half the time, especially to R2. Always go. And then, then the overarching Messiah complex of R2-D2, it's great and everything, but he always is the one that ends up saving the day. Um, 
it's just really exhausting the overuse of c-3po and r2d2 and and to the point we've referenced this in the phantom menace where it creates unnecessary qualms and leading into the original trilogy how in the world could darth vader anakin skywalker not recognize these two these two droids how in the world yeah yeah i still argue these characters should have just not been in the prequels they fulfill no essential function in the storytelling and are there ultimately for fan service and for a series of movies that struggles so much with telling the story it's trying to tell you don't need extraneous uh, fat that really should have been trimmed off so as far as i'm concerned these characters are just not needed in the prequels in any way shape or form chopper Chopper was the name of that droid. I could not Chopper, that's Chopper, the one. Chopper and the Imperial probe droid. And it's because maybe it's just my sense of humor is much more snarky and sarcastic. And that Imperial droid that, that turned towards the Rebel's side, he's so sarcastic and snarky. It's just, maybe it lands better with me. Maybe I'm being biased here. But yeah, that 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 is the one time, even over the animated series, which we praise all the time, Anytime they have like a four or five episode arc on just droids, it is so boring to me. I'm sorry. Maybe that's my hot take of the week. Um, Dave, what's next in the lightning round for you? I want to go ahead and piggyback off of what you were saying about C-3PO. And I want to talk about the uh, droid factory scene uh, on Geonosis towards the end of the movie. It is one of the most ludicrously long, boring, unnecessary scenes I've ever seen in a movie. There is no actual sense of danger here, even though uh, Anakin and Padme are basically stuck in this assembly line. At no point do you think, oh, that's what's going to get them. They're going to get squished in an assembly line. Of course, they won't have a big face-off with some villain. No, no, they're going to get squished by the assembly line. And taking uh, a part C-3PO is just so boring. And, and did Empire Strikes Back not establish that his voice is controlled by, like, the wires in his back? Like when Chewie is putting him back together, like he turns his voice back on by working on his back. So how exactly is the decapitated head of C-3PO just running his mouth the whole time when like his speech center is in another part that's been separated? Like there's just, there's just so much wrong with that whole sequence. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think we texted about this the other night as I was finishing up the film. It's the tropiest thing ever. How many types of media, whether it's movies or cartoons or TV shows, how many times have we seen this exact scene where you get to the exact moment where they're about to be covered in molten lava or whatever, or they're on this the last thing before the big guillotine falls on them, and then magically at that exact moment it stops. Again, R2-D2 coming to save the day here before they all die. Um, you know, it's just, I, I've seen this a thousand times, and I don't need to see it again. Yeah, that's exactly right. Chris, what is your next point in our lightning round? We've kind of kicked this around the last couple of points, but the unnecessary callbacks to the original trilogy are just insufferable. Oh, guess what? Luke Skywalker lost a hand? Well, his dad lost an entire arm. Oh, guess what? Luke sadly looked at the double sun sunset his dad did too oh you thought you saw the death star plans before here they are again the unnecessary remember those movies yeah you remember that like 
okay. This is Star Wars. We know what we're here for. We 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 know what this is. Don't we don't need the Death Star plans for the fifteenth time. You know? So those unnecessary callbacks to the original trilogy are just insufferable to me. What do you think? Do you remember when Star Wars movies were good? Pepperidge Farm remembers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't I don't know what to tell you. Like George Lucas has gone on the record several times saying that he thinks his movies should rhyme and they have repeated motifs, but I think it's just ultimately lazy. You need to give me something new that I want to be invested in and not just keep teasing me along with references to the superior material. Worry about making this material better and not just stuffing it with references to stuff that uh, I liked the first time around. Yeah, it's almost like you're saying, like, hey, this is a crappy movie, but remember when I used to make good movies? <laughs> so, yeah, um, and I think this just always falls all back on what we've said for the last couple of episodes. Tell a good story. Dave, what is next on your lightning round list? I really don't like the idea of of Anakin having these these visions or dreams and that just off of a dream, basically. He's like, oh, let's go to Tatooine. You know, like it's just a really bizarre decision to make. I thought it would be much more interesting and would actually uh, fix some of the problems we have with like uh, nobody ever going back for Shmi Skywalker if we just flip this around a little bit. And so have Owen Lars, which we said in the previous episode should have a bigger role in episode one, have him show up and tell Anakin something happened to his mom. If our episode one change of introducing Owen Lars would stick into this movie, then it would make sense that Anakin Obi-Wan asked Owen's help, since he's from Tatooine, in freeing Shmi. We can have the whole thing where it was Owen Lars's dad that freed her and he fell in love and all and they got married and all that. They can have all that. And then when Shmi goes missing, Owen is the one who basically picks up the phone, the holonet, and calls up Anakin and is like, hey dude, uh, I hate to break it to you, but you know how your mom is having a good life? Uh, not right now, she's been taken. And then he has a much more believable reason to, to basically drop everything and run to Tatooine. Because going off uh, like he did uh, on a whim and a dream seems not heroic, not uh, to repeat uh, this point yet again. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And just creates a through line of the trilogy that you and I are building over these past couple episodes. So, uh, you know, it's much more solid. It seems more along the lines of what we know to be Star Wars films. Somebody getting a hologram saying, hey, your mom's been taken. Uh, maybe we need to bring Qui-Gon Jinn back for that. You know, Liam Neeson knows thing about people being taken. But, um, yeah, so I, I just think it's, it's much more logical than I had a dream, and now let's go investigate. Let's risk our security, you know, and all this stuff. I know that, you know, you're trying to avoid assassination and everything, Padme, but no biggie. Yeah, it just makes much more sense. All right, Chris, what is uh, your next point for our lightning round? Uh, it's the tale as old as time when it comes to Star Wars. They create a villain that you really start to like, and then they kill him off. Oh, you like Jango Fett? He's really cool, huh? Oh, he did. So, yeah, he's beheaded. Um, you know, it's one of the few... Uh, I said this before. It's one of the few um, things that Mace Windu does that is not, you know, making him look like an absolute idiot. Um that and his purple lightsaber, which is really, really cool. 
But yeah, so um, Django Fett, like that entire sequence. Okay, so here's the thing. And then I was rewatching this film, and I just watched it again a couple of months ago for a rewatch that I was just doing independently. But I watched it again here. And this time, I really enjoyed most of the movie. Like, I had fun watching this um, until we got to the Padme Anakin scenes. And one of the most enjoyable parts was the fight on the torrential reign of Kamino between Obi-Wan and Jango Fett. And all apologies to Ewan McGregor and Obi-Wan. You know, he is the strength of this film, and we have barely mentioned him to the this point. But that whole scene between Jango and Obi-Wan on Kamino is just fascinating. And, um, you know, he's really one of the strengths of this film. And once again, as they are wont to do in Star Wars films, they kill him off really quickly. Yeah, he Jango Fett died of Darth Maul syndrome. It's a horrible disease that just infects all the good villains, I think. You know, it's just again one of those one of those problems you have with like you have a character you introduced, character has potential, has interesting interplay. You could very easily um imagine having a repeat um, engagement between Obi-Wan and, and Jango Fett in episode three. Uh, but again, you just kind of shoot yourself in the foot by, by removing that. It's just, it's incredibly regrettable. I totally agree. Um, I wish they would have done more with Jango ultimately. And it's not a situation necessarily like you did with Darth Maul, where he's cut in half at the waist and he can magically survive in a trash bin and give himself robot spider legs like he did in, in in clone wars he was beheaded so there's no coming back from this unless but, you're uh, c3po <laughs> yeah uh dave what is the last thing on your lightning round list this is my hot take for the episode um oh boy. I, I know a lot of people love this but i do not i don't want to see yoda fight with a lightsaber I always felt the way he was portrayed in the original trilogy, he was sort of beyond that. He's not a warrior. Uh, he even makes a point when he's talking to Luke about, you know, Luke wants to be a great warrior, or his dad was a great warrior, or something like that. And Yoda says, great warrior, wars don't make one great. And I think that this is sort of a betrayal, almost, of Yoda's character. And I know a lot of fans love this moment. It's it's one of those pop-up and cheer moments. Oh, this little guy is finally going to... We're going to see how powerful he is by fighting. But I always felt like Yoda was powerful because he wasn't fighting. That there was a larger point being made with the character. And really, watching Yoda hop around like an Energizer bunny on drugs did nothing for me. I didn't particularly think that that was a very good scene and i don't think it holds up ultimately chris what do you think yeah and i think this even goes to the color of his lightsaber if memory serves i think the green symbolizes like consular and and more like like students and, and, and more in line with yoda's character of having a green lightsaber um but at first glance, when I saw this on the shared document, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to prepare myself for this point. But but you, you won me over here. And it, and it makes sense. It's more in line with who he is as an individual. And it, it just comes across as cheap. And I kind of referenced this earlier. If you're only going for the sensory stimulating things of, yeah, oh, look, Yoda, he's 
gosh, mash. I think it's the the main problem of, and you know, this is a trope for this podcast already. It's it's one of the tropes of the Michael Bay Ninja Turtle films. They go for explosions and boom and bang and look at that, man. And there's no depth, so there's no real depth to that scene. Um, and and it's almost like a a slight betrayal of character. I totally agree there. All right. Chris, final point for the lightning round. What you got? I'm kind of piggybacking on that. Um, and we go back to the problematic character that is Count Dooku. Uh, I think Dooku is miscast. If you want to go in this direction, sure, with Count Dooku. But Christopher Lee, I don't feel, is the correct actor for this role. He's, you know, an, an elderly actor at this point in his career. Um you know, he's great as Saruman. You can be a wizard when you're an old guy because you got the gray hair. It works. Um, but for for an elderly man to be leaping around like he is with Yoda in this scene, it just looks campy and cartoony and goofy. Um, I think he's given a better portrayal. Uh, again, broken record. In the Clone Wars, you know, animated series, he's more a service to his character. But, but here, it just comes across as really goofy. Um... And for someone so so elderly and to be so like an elder statesman to I know that Yoda's eight nine hundred years old here for him to be like my master and seems like he's like such a youthful character I I think it's just all just a mess so this is the final time we'll say it the character of Count Dooku is highly problematic well and I will and I will add two things here uh, first of all. If Yoda also had a student that fell to the dark side, then Obi-Wan can feel a lot better about himself, can't he? It's not, it's not, it's not this incredibly unique pain that Obi-Wan experiences. So I think that, that already belittles what Obi-Wan ultimately goes through when he loses Anakin as a student and friend. Uh, oh yeah, well, it happened to Yoda too, so, you know. Mm. But what I would find really interesting is, you know, let's, let's have this character, I mean, if we're going to have him, we could have done something completely different. Why can he not really be a political idealist and not a dark a dark side character? Exactly. Why is that the, the default? And I would even go further than that and say, episode one had a character like that. An elder Jedi who would break with the council to do what he think is right. This exactly. could have been a place for Qui-Gon Jinn. Exactly. So this is a huge missed opportunity yet again in this movie. Yeah, and I feel like, um, you know, here I get, here I go again, but like something that they found in the Clone Wars where you had Ahsoka Tano being expelled from the Jedi Order for false accusations and then leaving of her own volition because she saw the corruption kind of seeding and like one of the most upstanding characters, always doing the right thing type of characters, um, embodies in my mind what truly it means to be a Jedi but, you know, the Jedi Council and so many of them get caught up in the red tape and the bureaucracy and, and all of this other nonsense, you know. So you had another, you know, option here to where... And I, I feel like the best villains in films, in comics, in television are the ones that you, for a second at least, or even longer, you kind of go with what they're saying. Like, for me, it's Black Panther. Um, Killmonger is probably one of the strongest villains that I've ever seen in popular culture and popular media. 
because I can kind of vibe with what he's saying for most of the film. You know, maybe not in execution, the way he goes about things. But if you have someone like a Count Dooku who truly is a political idealist and truly believes that he is doing the right thing and it's not some nefarious plan that you automatically have to go to Palpatine because it all has to go back to Palpatine because that's the quick and easy microwave meal TV dinner, three minutes and 30 seconds in the microwave, and we go back to Palpatine. If you really had some depth here, I feel like you could really have been, you know, a really strong thing to go with. Totally agree. It would have been really fun to see Qui-Gon Jinn basically turn against the Jedi Order because he believes, you know, that they're overly corrupt and he's trying to protect people by breaking with the Republic. I think that would have been fascinating to watch. And then you have Palpatine trying to manipulate those circumstances to his advantage. Yeah, I could see something like that. That would have been much more interesting to watch. It'd have been really fascinating to develop. Uh, that wraps up our byword big talk for this week. When we come back from our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back here on the Nerd Byword podcast with our customary nerd commendations for this week. Dave, what do you have for us? I have a uh, comic book, a graphic novel, that will be released this week, and I had the chance to read an advanced copy of the book. Uh, so the book is going to be released on Tuesday, July 14th, and it is called Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics by Tom Scioli. Um, this is basically a comic book biography of Jack Kirby, one of the most influential artists of the golden age of comics, uh, both at Marvel and DC to some extent. Uh, Scioli actually writes, pencils, colors, and hand letters his own work in this 200-page graphic novel. And it's really impressive. Uh, he is an admitted fan of Kirby's, and his artwork uh, is clearly influenced by Kirby and how he uh, did his artwork. I really liked it. Uh, there's some unique stuff happening with both the art and with storytelling. Uh, Scioli uses a first-person perspective for most of the book, so it's almost like Jack Kirby is narrating his own life from beyond the grave. Uh, he's also done a lot of in-depth research. Uh, he includes extensive notes and sources in the back of the book. Um, Kirby was just a really, truly fascinating guy and hugely influential. And so I highly recommend this book. I think it's a great read. Yeah, this is fascinating for me. When when you put this on the list and I I did an Amazon search for it, I was like, wait, is he talking about it looks like it hasn't been released yet, but you know, you got some insider tricks that you got an advanced copy that explains it all. But it looks fascinating to me and, and being the history nerds that you and I both are, for a giant of the industry like Jack Kirby to be featured in something like this, I mean, he's perhaps the name in, in comics art. Um he has, you know, art styles named for him. Um, and presenting this uh, in this format is just like the chef's kiss. Like, it just seems perfect, and I can't wait to check this out. I really feel like Kirby would have liked this. Uh, just the way he is portrayed in this book and everything I've read about the guy, I think he would have liked to have seen his life rendered in art like this. I think he would have really appreciated this. So, highly recommended book. Uh, Chris, what is your nerd commendation for this week? My nerd commendation for this week is a current title. Um, it is Marauders by uh, Jerry Duggan. 
It's got art uh, by Matteo Loli, Michelle Bandini, Lucas Wernick, and Stefano Caselli. Um, it goes in line with the current Dawn of X slate um, that was introduced by the House of X and Powers of Ten um, series that I that I uh, recommended in our very first episode. Um, and it was basically like this almost like a rebirth um, similar to what DC does every couple of years, like a, a rebirth in essence of the X-Men titles. Um, and there was an entirely huge slew of books coming out that was released um, in, in the fall of last year. And in looking at that slate of titles, it can be overwhelming. Um, and that can be a heavy hit uh, in the wallet when you go to your comic book shop or you purchase digital. Um, so I completely understand that. Being the ex-fan that I am myself, the completionist, I read just about everything that is coming out with this, uh, with the Dawn of X. Um, but for me, it, it, you know, this is almost like an insider type deal. I've read, every, I've read all of it. And if I, I, you know, this expert advice here, if you have to pick one book from Dawn of X, um, aside from the main X-Men title, which is written by Jonathan Hickman himself, and is just superb. If you have to pick one other title that's not just X-Men, um, it's most assuredly this one. It's such a cool premise. It's mutants and pirates. Mutant pirates. It's a swashbuckling, save-the-day type of adventures. They're doing the right thing, and the basic premise of the book is um, Kate Pride. Don't call her Kitty. She is now Kate Pride. Kate Pride um, has her own team of mutants. And um, if you read House of X and Powers of Ten, you know that the mutants of the world have proclaimed their own sovereignty in the na- island nation of Krakoa. Um, and this uh, goes in line with, with uh, other nations who do not recognize the sovereignty of Krakoa. And some of these Krakoan flowers create these gates, which are kind of like portals, and they can easily go to Krakoa and live there. And so there are countries like Russia um, and and other countries around the world who do not recognize the sovereignty um, of Krakoa. And so therefore, the mutants in their countries, they do not allow them, and they've got like the gates like boarded up and all of that. So it's Kate Pride's job and her team to go and rescue these mutants who are being persecuted or mistreated. Um, so it's a very swashbuckling kind of save the day Robin Hood-esque type of book. It's got some of my favorite mutants in it. Kate, don't call her Kitty Pride. Um, Storm, my goddess. Uh, Bishop, who I think is one of the most underrated mutants. I love Bishop. Uh, he's a fantastic character. Callisto, who's always been a really interesting character to me as leader of the Morlocks. Sebastian Shaw, who is such a scene chewer. I love characters. Like, this is why I love Magneto. Um, uh, you, you know, whether they're villain or hero, they're, if they're a scene chewer. Like, Sebastian Shaw is always a good villain, even in crappy storylines from the past. Like, uh, X-Men Legacy, I just read. Uh, which is kind of a weak storyline, but the the issues that feature Sebastian Shaw are, are good because he's so dynamic as a nemesis. Um, other people's favorites, Emma Frost is big with a lot of X-Fans. I personally still don't forgive her for what she did to Jean Grey, but that's neither here nor there. She has some great um, issues here. Iceman um, really has some, some great scenes, and Pyro as well. 
there's some great ongoing mysteries. For some reason, Kate Pride cannot use the gates to go to Krakoa. We don't know why yet. Um, we don't know if that still has to do with her phasing powers or, or whatnot, but she cannot use the gates to Krakoa. Um, and there's another one that is a, a, a big mystery, but I'm not going to spoil that. So Marauders by Jerry Duggan and company is just a fantastic, fun, fun, fun read. Every issue is fun. Um, and I was happy to look on um, Marvel Unlimited. They got the first five issues. And then I went on the Marvel Digital Comic Store. And we hinted at this in episode two where we, quote unquote, saved the comic book industry. And Dave, the digital issues are cheaper than the print issues for this series. Holy smokes, that's great news. Yeah, so issues 1 through 7 on the Marvel Digital Comic Store are just $199. 8, 9, and 10, the more recent releases, are $399. But 1 through 7 on this series are $199. And you can, of course, find this in print if you're if you're a physical co- uh, comic kind of guy or gal. Um, you can find this in local comic book shops as well. But Marauders... I love it. It's so much fun every time. Every issue is so fun. Yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, I, I keep kind of eyeballing the new uh, X-Men comic book, sort of uh, cautiously optimistic and at the same time a little overwhelmed because there are so many tie-in series. I really plan on getting into it eventually, but it does seem a little daunting. So having this inside knowledge that there is, you know, besides the main series, this is the best one, uh, that'll help me narrow it down. So that's really good advice. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with all, if all those fails, for, from my perspective, is just wait six months and just binge it on Marvel Unlimited or something to that effect, you know? Sounds great. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thanks for hanging with us this week. As always, new episodes drop every single Monday in your podcast feed. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts from. If that's Apple Podcasts, if that's Spotify, if that's the TuneIn app, or our fancy schmancy nerdbyword.com. Uh, you can always find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, at Nerd by Word on Instagram and Twitter, and at The Nerd by Word on Facebook. We're uh, absolutely thrilled that you decided to listen to another one of our episodes. Uh, this is our seventh one, so I think we're starting to hit our stride. Uh, tune in again next week for another great episode. We're excited to have you. Stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is produced by two nerds, Chris and Dave, to encompass all aspects of the nerd multiverse. The theme music was written by Al Jimenez. Our show art features original art by Ashby Design, as well as public domain comic pens. Find us online at nerdbyword.com, on Twitter at nerdbyword, and send questions and comments to nerdbyword at gmail.com. Alright, that wraps up our big three changes for Attack of the uh, Attack of the Clones, not the Crones. Um, Hopefully no one has Crohn's. Sorry. Um, Attack of the Clones. We now head to the lightning round. Um, we're going to go rapid fire here. Dave, what's first in the lightning round for you? There's nothing rapid fire happening right now. I need a moment to recover from Attack of the Crohn's. <laughs> <laughs> the 
we need a blooper reel. I wasn't th I wasn't thinking Crohn's disease. I was thinking like old women, you know, attack. Oh of the yes, Crohn's. that's exactly. Oh, apologies to all of our listeners that may have a loved one with Crohn's disease. I was actually thinking of haggard old women. No. Oh. <laughs> all right. Do you want to just go ahead and throw that back to me again? <laughs> I need a... <laughs> that, was, that was too much.